Because this week marks 20 years of continuous human presence on the International Space Station, we're going to have a look back at the history of space stations. That's right, from Salute to the ISS, via Skylab, Mir, and not forgetting Tiangong, we'll do our best to celebrate them all. Don't forget to please do get in touch and let us know your thoughts about what we're doing. Use at Space and Things 1 on Twitter or tag us at Space and Things Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. That would be delightful. And uh, please do send any of your spaceflight loving friends over to us. If you like what we're doing, then they might too. But right now, let's try and entertain you with episode 9 of Space and Things. You're listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Emily Carney and Dave Giles. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode nine of our podcast. Hey, Emily, before we get going, uh, I was quite excited earlier because I went on Twitter and I saw that you had been part of the Her, Sto- Her Story 100 uh, video, which has gone online today, which was amazing. Yes, uh, I was really honored uh, to be asked to be a part of that. Um, I want to give a shout out to Christina uh, Corp. I don't know if I if I missed your name up, Christina. I, I really apologize, but uh, I was really honored to be asked to be part of that. But uh, yeah, I'm very humbled because um, for those of you who have uh, watched the video, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, please check it out. Um, it's on our social media. But um, oh my gosh, yeah, there was some legends in there absolutely <laughs> there absolutely. were some legends in there yes legendary women so i was very honored to even be a part of that in any way possible i, I was like wow so yeah there was some guest yeah. list to be part of wasn't it at some party i'd, I'd yes. like to be at that's for sure yeah it was incredible so i'm really uh honored and very humbled to uh be a part of it and uh basically uh the video discusses the uh the 100th anniversary of the uh, 19th amendment which gave uh, women in the United States the right to vote. And that's basically my political statement for this year. I know it's election <laughs> year in the United States. So uh, get out, use your freedom of choice, use your voice and get out and vote. Exactly. So. Exactly. Also, Emily, uh, I've really enjoyed watching you this week with your discussions about <laughs> fictional Chris Craft in the right stuff. <laughs> You've had me absolutely cracking up with some of your comments. I'm in love with fictional Chris Craft. I'm married, but I have a. I'm having an extramarital affair with fictitious Chris Craft right now. Um, sorry, Steve. Steve's like listening to this, probably like, uh, what? No, um, no. I I have a thing for him. I don't know why. I just want to serve him a Miller Light while wearing an apron and. While he yells at people, I have no idea why. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we, we, yeah. We'll talk more about the right stuff in, in a later episode. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he's had some <laughs> yeah, great. We'll he's had some great scenes. That's for sure. He has had some. Yes, great scenes. he has. He's he's for me. He's making. I mean, I like the rest of the show. The whole show is excellent. Um, I'm really pleasantly surprised so far by it. If you haven't watched it yet. But uh, I'm really enjoying it. But I, he's definitely my favorite character right now. Yeah, me, me too. Me too. Although th- in this week's episode, I did enjoy what they did with Deke. But we'll talk about that later. Yes, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Anyway, let's get on with the show. One foot between two of my legs. Let's see if that works. That hit me right in the head. So before we get on to the space station stuff, there's obviously been a couple of pretty big stories this week. So, uh, but 
you know, why wouldn't there be? It's another week in spaceflight. Uh, on Saturday, the 24th of October, the Saturday just gone, SpaceX successfully launched a Falcon 9 rocket with some more of their Starlink satellites on board. Uh, this launch is particularly notable because it was the company's 100th successful launch since their inception in 2002. Uh, and while we're talking about SpaceX, there's been some excite- excitement at their Boca Chica launch site in Texas, where the SN8 Starship has been fully erected, ready for testing. If you're not familiar with Starship, then check out the video in our show notes. Uh, it's essentially a giant silver bullet of a rocket. Very sci-fi looking, and it's going to potentially redefine spaceflight for the future. And after another classic NASA move of announcing an announcement... <laughs> Last Thursday, NASA announced we'd have a big announcement on Monday. It's a lot of announcements. Uh, w- yeah, they they always they're a little extra when it comes to announcements, aren't they? Just um, yes, they are. Which turned out to be water on the moon again. Uh, this time, <laughs> this time it is different though. Uh, while we have had uh, many reports of water on the moon in the past. Uh, SOFIA, which stands for the uh, Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, which uh, quite incredibly is inside a converted 747 airplane, has found proof of water existing in the sunny parts of the moon, or to be precise, in uh, Clavius, I think that's how it's pronounced, crater, which is uh, one of the largest craters uh, visible from Earth located in the moon's southern hemisphere. Now, if you've seen uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, then you should be familiar with it. Uh, this is very exciting news because in the past, it was thought that this would only exist in the cold parts of the moon, which are the bits in, that are in the uh, shadow constantly. But this would suggest that there could be water all over the surface, which would make sustaining life on a lunar base on a lunar base a lot easier. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, and uh, while we're talking about discoveries, remember a few weeks back, I think it was episode three, when we said that there was evidence of life in the clouds of Venus. Well, it appears that after some scrutiny of the data, this may not be the case, and they're looking into it some more. Uh, but I loved how this all broke again, because it's a great example of how science works. And uh, I love how the sci- commu- scientific community does this. Uh, someone publishes something and then everyone else tries to prove them wrong. This is an encouraged activity by scientists and it's essential to ensure that we're continuing to try and improve our knowledge of how things work. Uh, but anyway, for now, the idea of life on Venus is back on the drawing board. And following on from last week's big story, it turns out that OSIRIS-REx took a really big sample from the asteroid Bennu. In fact, it got so much that the lid of the sampling head has jammed open. Uh, So they're going to try to attempt to stow the sample earlier than uh, expected. And hopefully we'll still get a big sample uh, back here on Earth in a couple of years when it returns. And thus concludes our roundup. That's quite a reek. Yes, it is. There's a there's certainly been a lot going on in the space world. Yeah, it's it's almost like every day you and I are having to text each other. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's always something happening every day, especially with the moon announcement. I was like, uh, what did they find on the moon again? Like, yeah. I, I loved <laughs> oh, how boy. yeah, I loved how the internet absolutely nearly broke because there was an announcement of an announcement. NASA do that so well, but also it's quite. It, excruciating uh when they do it i think one of our uh patreons uh said something like uh, oh man i hope the moon got engaged <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that was a ma yeah that was something like that wasn't it yeah <laughs> very amusing that was pretty good very amusing <laughs> uh but but alas 
Uh, it was just water. Well, I say just water. It is a big deal, but it's not. An, it, it's not really new. It's not. It's new, but it's not new. I think it was discovered as far back as uh, the 90s, maybe. Yeah. Uh, probably even further back than that. So, yeah. Who knows? But it's still, it's good news. Uh, but if you watched For All Mankind... Yeah, I was, I was about to know, say. Yeah. I, wa- I watched a documentary last year and Molly Cobb discovered... Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> discovered water Sha- on the moon. At Shackleton. <laughs> yeah. Shackleton Crater. Yeah. So, we've already, dis- we already know about this during Apollo 15. Yeah. All right. Uh, another great TV show. Series two coming yes. soon. Can't wait. Anyway. Yes. Cannot wait. So we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. Um, this week marks the 20th year of continuous human presence on the International Space Station, which really does blow my mind because anyone who was born after the 1st of November 2000 has had someone living in space above them for the whole of their lives. And that's quite mind-blowing. Uh, so a, f- a few fun facts about the ISS before we, we look at history of space stations. There have been 240 individuals from 19 different countries who have visited the station, uh, which includes 151 Americans and one British person. Uh, (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's all right. It's all right. We got one. Uh, There have been 231 spacewalks, and one of them was done by our very own Brit. Uh, And there are two bathrooms, and each astronaut has to work out for two hours a day, so they have a gym up there as well. Uh, up to six spacecraft can be docked at any one time, and there are eight miles of electrical cable on board. The current crew arrived last week, Kate Robbins, uh, Rubins, and two guys called Sergey, whose surnames I didn't have time to try and learn this week, uh, in terms of how to pronounce. And in fact, I don't <laughs> even think I'm saying Sergey right. So I apologise to everyone involved, because I've just got all three names very wrong. There's a lot of Sergeys in the Russian space program, so uh, I think most of their cosmonauts are named Sergey for some reason, so I totally understand. Um, yeah, I, I'm just amazed. I, I remember when the first crew up uh, went up back in the day, uh, back in the day when I was probably 22, I remember when they went up, and I believe the first crew was uh, Bill Shepard, he was the American, and I believe he was the commander of the first mission, uh, Sergei Krikalov, who <laughs> so, I remember. Because, yeah, and Sergei Krikalov is a really, fa- he's very famous. Like, uh, he's a real famous, I believe now he's in charge of their um, space program. He's a big deal in Russia. He's called the last Soviet because um, he was he was on the space station Mir for like, I want to say 10 months in right. 1991 to 2. When he arrived there, he was Soviet. And when he came back, he was Russian. Of course. He was, had a different nationality. I know there was a third person with Expedition 1, and I am very ashamed to say it was a cosmonaut who was probably named Sergei something. <laughs> so I, I, I'm very ashamed to say this, and I'm sure I offended somebody. So uh, I apologize. But there is a movie about Expedition 1 and 2, and it's, uh, it's an IMAX movie. Um, and I've seen it in IMAX, and it's really cool. I, I think I saw it in IMAX 3D. I don't know. I, I want to say I saw it at Kennedy Space Center. But uh, I have it on DVD, and it's called Space Station. Uh, it's really a beautiful film. But uh, I do have to say the ISS looked a lot different back then than it does now. It was not nearly as large. Now it's about the size of a, a football field. Because if you watch that movie, you're going to say, wow, that doesn't look like the ISS. And it, it was not completed yet. So... Um, Because it's a modular space station, and basically what that means is different parts of it are shipped up individually, 
and they're just put together. Yeah. So I, I've just looked up the guy's name. Uh, his name was was Yuri. <clears throat> so close. Yuri. Okay. Yeah. That's a pretty common cosmonaut name. Yuri, Yuri Gidzenko. Uh, was was the other was the other member, uh, but but yeah. yeah, I just looked up a photo as well, and it's completely different. It doesn't, it, yeah, it's hard to imagine that that's turned into what we now know as the ISS. It's not really recognizable as the ISS we know now. So yeah, I do have to. I just don't want people to watch the movie and be like, "That's not the I-. yeah, that is the ISS." It was just a baby. Yeah, yeah, I can't believe it's been that long. It doesn't seem that long, but I do remember when the first crew went up, and I remember when they started putting the the pieces together i i do remember that and it doesn't seem very long ago but uh, looking at the pictures of the fashions and the oh, my eyebrows back then it was, <laughs> it was 20 years ago so I, I found something i was doing a little bit of research today and and in, in as you said it was a modular it's a modular station and the russian stuff was all automated it would all join and connect in space and that all the electrics and all that was was would turn on immediately. It was all connected, whereas the US side all had to be done used doing spacewalks, or had to be connected yeah. um, with EVAs. Uh, and that that surprised me that there was such a difference in approach to building their own sections, even though it's all become the same house. I do want to say that despite our political differences. <laughs> Um, Russia and the United States in space actually get along fairly well. Um, and the Russian crews and the U.S. crews do work together. It, I, to me, it's kind of an example of how, you know, diplomacy in space, that kind of interconnectedness of spaceflight can bring people together, you know, and make people a little closer despite all the crap that's going on down here. Yeah. But um, yeah, I, the Russians and the United States do have kind of, I guess, different approaches to uh, space stations and how they do stuff. I think you're so right. Mm-hmm. The ISS is perhaps one of the greatest achievements of, of humankind simply yes. because of how it's brought everyone together, so many countries together to work on a project. Um, so so it's, it's essentially Canada, Japan, Russia and the United States and the 11 members of the European Space Agency. So that that's... What fifteen countries? I think, yeah, I think so, fifteen yeah. countries uh, who who have got together and done something for the greater good. And the fact that eighteen different countries have had people on board sh- shows this is this is good. This is about coming together and doing something. And I, I hope that continues beyond this project. I hope this is this sets a blueprint. It's a shame that China aren't involved because they're such a big player in space now. I know they've got. We'll talk more about them in a bit. I'm sure. But when they put this all together if they'd managed to get trying involved that would have really put the icing on the cake in terms of using it for diplomacy i agree uh, i wish we could work with china or we were in the position to work with china uh right now um and i think it's kind of a shame because i noticed with and we talked about it i think a couple weeks back the artemis accord yeah i do think it's kind of a shame because we're not working with russia on that so it's kind of i don't know i i I think, like you said, I think the ISS really is a good example of, you know, how I'm getting a little off track here, but there's this book by Frank White called The Overview Effect. Mm. It has stories in it from astronauts who have, you know, gone to space and kind of their how their perspective of the world and humankind changed from their, um, from their you know, going to space and, you know, how when you leave the planet and you see on earth we look at a map and you see lines you see cities you know that are divided and countries that are divided and land masses that you know okay i can't go to 
you know, North Korea and South Korea. You can't go into one area, you know, and um, in space, you don't see any of that. There's no everything appears borderless. And and that book really kind of has that spirit of, okay, you know, spaceflight does have this way of kind of perpetuating this this sense of oneness, I guess, with, you know, humanity. So for sure. um, And I think the ISS really exemplifies that. So I got a little off tangent there, but. I hope it made sense. No, but it's also important to to, to acknowledge that that it, it's a it's an important part of, of life on Earth right now is the fact that we have this yes. thing floating up ahead that is a cooperative endeavor, and I and I think that should be celebrated. And and it's nice when you look up and you see it go past. It, it's it's a nice thing, as, especially when you know there are people in there and and they're from different nationalities, and it's not just only Americans up there or only Russians up there. It's a so it can be all kinds of uh, countries up there, and that's that's great, and hopefully more people in the future as well. And the plans are to add on more f- more modules to even turn it into almost a space hotel in the future, yeah. which which uh, we'll see how that goes. But it's a great achievement, and and obviously it owes a lot to what came before it, going right back to the first station back in 1971. Wait, So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Space Station Heritage and uh, the history of space stations. And the first uh, space station was not Skylab, which when I say that, it surprises some people because they're used to hearing me talk about (laughs) Skylab all the time. The first space station was actually uh, launched in 1971, and it was launched by the uh, Soviets, and it was Salyut 1. And um, I really want to say I, you really have to hand it to the Soviets because I believe their effort with their space stations, because if you look at their history starting in 1971, they really kept sending up more advanced space stations with mm. the Salyut program and eventually with Mir, which was more sophisticated. And it was a modular uh, space station. But um, if you look at the Soviet and the Russian space program, they, to me, their effort in really establishing space stations and having crews, you know, relieve, you know, a crew come up and a crew come down, that really um, kind of set a template for like long term space habitation. Yeah. So they really pioneered that. And um, a lot of people are not going to agree with what I'm about to say. I'm probably going to offend some people, but I really think it's almost analogous with the American the Apollo program. Yeah. Okay. You know, we did send people to the moon and that was incredible. And I'm not, nobody's taking credit from that, but the Soviets kind of, they really pioneered space stations and how to send up people for longer, longer periods and to kind of learn a little bit of how to live in space. So I do have to give them a lot of credit back to where I started though. Um, the Soviets did send up the first space station in 1971. Um, Unfortunately, and this is not a happy story here, unfortunately, um, I forgot how many days the crew were up there for, but they were up there for, I, I want to say they broke the longevity record, 21. Okay, I think, I, think it was, I think that's what I read earlier. It's around 20 anyway. At the time, that was the record for, you know, longest time spent in space because um, Apollo hadn't spent that much time in space. So that was a pretty big deal at the time. But unfortunately, when the crew came back, um, I believe there was a an issue with a valve in their Soyuz, and the capsule uh, depressurized, and the crew expired. So, which is really tragic. It's not a happy ending. 
So basically what happened to Salyut 1 is it it came back down. It deorbited and it was not used again after that. Um, I believe Salyut 2 was launched. I forgot. I think it was launched in maybe 73. That one didn't quite make it to space. I want to say it, it, it broke apart or something like that. Something weird happened with it. I believe Salyut 3 went up shortly after, and um, some of the space stations were also called the Almaz, and that's really a story unto itself, but basically they were spying. They were doing the um, MOLE program, the Manned Orbiting Laboratory program, kind of their style. They were spying on us and stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, and that really was not talked about in the West until more recently. It was not talked about like publicly. Like it was something that was like, yeah, they were spying. We didn't know about it. Yeah. So the Soviets had, I want to say, seven of the Soyuz space stations. They weren't very big. If you look at pictures of them, they're not very large. There's also a really neat story. If you have time and you want to read more about it, um, the Soyuz seven basically died <laughs> in space. Um, I want th- I want to say this happened around like 1985, and basically it just um. You know, ground controllers could not do anything with it. It was unresponsive. And um, a crew, and I believe the commander of the crew was uh, Vladimir Zhenebikov. I think I said his name right. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to correct you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There was a crew sent up. It was two men. And they went inside and they resuscitated the space station. However, it was uh, frozen inside and they had to wear like winter clothes i mean it was nuts if you look at the pictures from this it's insane but they um resuscitated the space station and i want to say a few more crews went up there so um yeah it's a wild story if you have time if you want to read about it um just type in salute 7 uh, rescue or something like that and you should be able to find the story but it is insane they actually went up there and yeah totally you know revived this frozen dead space station it was it's nuts wow i hadn't actually heard about that i thought i will go and look and look that up and if i find a, an article about it i'll put it in the show notes um yeah before you move on it was 23 days not 21 i just checked okay um yeah just before someone corrects me yeah no that's okay but um back to S- russian and soviet space station yeah. it's um space station's the immediate predecessor to the iss was Mir. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, I want to say the base block was launched in February 1986. The reason why I remember this was because it happened around my birthday that year. Uh, and I was re- I was real little, but I remember this because in the West, we didn't know much about what they were doing at the time because there was like, this was during the Cold War. So we yeah. didn't really know much. So I think I read in the paper because I was precocious. I was reading the newspaper. I think I read in the paper around that time, uh, the Soviet task says the Soviet unions have launched a space station. That was it. Nice. That was all we got. So now I'm going to backtrack again because this is kind of Mir is where the American and the um, Russian space program start to intersect. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit and go back to the start of um, America's space station endeavor, which was Skylab. Never heard of it. it- <laughs> <laughs> No, I've not heard of that once. You should talk about it, perhaps. Oh, God. I'm kind of afraid to talk about it because I'm like, we're going to be here for eight hours. You're going to be hearing stuff about it that nobody cares about. But um, I'll just try to summarize Skylab up real quick. In the 60s, 
Uh, George Mueller sketched um, the idea for Skylab down on, a, I want to say, a napkin or something. Um, there is a picture of his sketch on the internet. It's kind of neat to see, but um, in the late 60s, there were kind of some different concepts for what would become Skylab um, kind of bandied about. One of them was called a wet workshop. Basically, we would launch like an S-4B type space station and crews would go up, you know, in like a Saturn 1B, a smaller rocket, and they would drain the fuel out of the larger section and live in that section. Wow. Um, I'm, yeah, which is completely nuts. Um, <laughs> Um, and I think Werner von Braun himself tried to test this concept. I want to say he got in an EVA suit and he got in the tank in Huntsville. It was not in JSC like it is now. Yeah. So he went and tried to test this concept himself. And he was like, this just doesn't work. It's too, it's too bulky. It's, it's really too much of a pain. So they went to the dry workshop concept, which basically is what Skylab ended up being. Uh, it was, uh, Basically, the upper stage of a of a Saturn V or um, S4B. Yeah, and it was dry, which meant there was no propellant or anything in it. So fast forward, we're going to skip a lot of time. We're going to uh, May 14, 1973, and it launches from Kennedy Space Center and immediately runs into a bunch of problems. Um, during the launch, and I'm going to summarize this real quickly because this is a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> so basically during launch, a bunch of bad stuff happens. In about 60 seconds, the ground controller is like, that's weird. Why is the solar panel, why is SAS2 solar panel drawing current? Well, it turns out what was happening was the uh, micrometeoroid shield was about to come off. And um, so it came off. And what it did was um, when that happened, it dislodged the solar panels. And at about 10 minutes into the launch, when the uh, S2 stage basically left the space station, when that popped off at staging, the force of that basically caused the uh, SAS2 solar panel to rip right off. And the other one was jammed. So immediately it ran into problems. So um, we're going to fast forward through this 10 days later. Skylab two launches and they go up and um, they actually managed to save the space station. They had a replacement sun shield, which was um, deployed through one of the scientific airlocks. And they also had a, um, they also were able to do a spacewalk, which is, if you want to read about that in itself, it's nuts that they did this. But um, Comrade and Kerwin, Pete Comrade and Joe Kerwin, two of the crew members did a spacewalk and they actually dislodged the solar panel. So they basically saved the space station, which was incredible in itself, because really, if you read more into the, all the launch anomalies, it almost didn't make it. But that's, like I said, that's really a whole story separately. Yeah. Skylab was so successful. It had uh, three crews. The first um, Skylab 2 was up 28 days, which broke the um, endurance record that Solute wanted set. Um, the second crew was up, um, who were Alan Bean, Jack Lausma, and Owen Garriott. We're up for, I want to say, I think 59 days. And uh, the third crew, which was the best crew, I'm a little <laughs> biased because they're really nice guys, um, was uh, Jerry Carr, uh, William Pogan, Ed Gibson, and they were up for 84 days, which which that record was not broken until, I want to say, 1995 for a space station increment. So, um, right. yeah, they set a lot of records, and uh, Skylab did a ton of space science, and... Um, the data is really still being gone through today because it was the direct predecessor to the ISS. 
in terms of, okay, how do human bodies react in space? What kind of things can we learn about, you know, bone mass and blood and muscle mass and space? You know, it was really the direct precursor to that program in terms of things like that. So um, it did a ton of science experiments. I think there were 80 experiments on board, but they did over, I want to say, 300 investigations on there. So um, they accomplished an awful lot in a very short period of time. I want to say the vehicle was only crewed for eight months. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm going to end it at that because <laughs> if I get into the whole Skylab story, we're going to be here for a few years. So. Yeah. I, I did uh, I did watch Searching for Skylab recently after our discussion on, on, on documentaries. Uh, I, I managed to get, get hold of that and it's wonderful. So everyone should, uh, if you can get hold of that, be sure to check it out. Um, Emily, Emily put me onto that one and it's really good. You'll learn a lot about that program. Um, but I will use uh, I will use some of the audio from uh, Pete and Joe's Spacewalk. Yes. Throughout a fun this one. Um, podcast. So if you've heard anything from it's probably from that. But yeah, if um, if Pete Conrad was arrived for the uh, for the dot com boom, I think he would have set up a website called wefixanything.com. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's, that's what he funny. would have done. Yeah, they really saved the day. It's incredible because, what they um, did. It's an incredible story. It really is. And I think it's a story that's really underrated because you don't, a lot of people just don't remember that. I mean, that, that Skylab was really crippled when it came up. What yeah. they really did, you know, in turning it around and making that experience positive uh, really was amazing. And I, I really feel like it doesn't get enough credit in human spaceflight and, and spaceflight in general. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. More I've looked into that, that's that's definitely true. And especially the turnaround from the, the point of launch to them going up and not knowing what they were going to be greeted with. It's not like today where you have, you know, you can send something up and, and get a good look at it or there'll be something up there which will be able to get a good look at it or something, you know. Well... You, they didn't have that then. They, they had a bit of telemetry. They had a bit of data on the ground. I don't want to burst your bubble. They did have um, an intelligent oh. satellite take some pictures. I take it all back. I take it all back. I don't know anything. <laughs> there were some uh, set intelligence satellites that took some pictures from what i understand and um i didn't hear this none of y'all heard this you're all deaf right now but um i've been told they're they were pretty good photos <laughs> let me let me retract my whole thing when they got there they didn't know what mess it was going to be inside yeah they didn't know if something had, you know it was and it was hot in there it was like yeah. 120 plus degrees they didn't know if stuff had blown up in there they just didn't yeah they were facing a lot of unknowns and i think that's very underrated and um, space history. Yeah, it really is. So, so the so the Salute and and Skylab were both the kind of space station that went up on top of a rocket, and then someone went up. Astronauts went up on a different ship to dock with it. Uh, yes, and and Mir was the first modular space station like we now have the ISS. And there's a great website uh, by um, Anatoly Zak um, called RussianSpaceWeb.com, which uh, I believe it should still have this. Um, I believe it has a diagram of a, a really good graphic of Mir and all of the modules and basically in, in the order in which they were attached. So if you really want to look into that, that's the best place, I think, to go look at it. Mir went up in 1986 and um, and over years they added a bunch of stuff and um, a bunch of modules to it. And in the early 90s, um, NASA and I don't think it was called Roscosmos back then, but the Russian space program, they started talking about flying together. 
Um, and it was basically phase one of the uh, ISS program. Yeah. You know, it was kind of the lead up to what would become the ISS. So um, in 1994, the first step was taken and Sergei Krikalov, remember him? He yeah. flew on a space, he flew on Discovery. And shortly after that, I want to say starting in uh, 1995, we started flying astronauts to the uh, to Mir. And this was basically preparation. I mean, they were real missions, obviously, but it was kind of preparation to see, okay, what will an ISS situation be like? You know, what it will it be like living with a, you know, a Russian crew? Yeah. How, how do we manage that from the ground, having, having uh, different space programs involved and le- learning those skills exactly learning russian you Exa- know? exactly exactly um so th- my fun fact about mir is uh the cosmonaut valery polak hmm, polyakov <laughs> it's okay so bad with i names. think you got it right uh he spent 438 consecutive days aboard mir uh, from January 94 to March 95. And that is still, to this day, the longest single human space flight. The Russians really, I mean, I, you got to hand it to them. Um, they really have pioneered, you know, going up in space for ages and coming back down. Um, and there's also a great movie. Um, Armageddon. Not Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> Although I wish that would kind of happen this week before election week. Um, no, I'm just kidding. There is a great movie. Um, I don't know how available it is now. I saw it years ago. It's called um, Out of the Present. And it's about um, Sergei Krikalov on Mir as the Soviet Union fell. And um, it shows him when he comes back. Because he's he, he was in space for about 10 months because... Um, several reasons i want to say they they had some crew swaps or something like that so he was he was basically in space uh, a little longer than expected but uh when they pull him out of the capsule when he comes back he is like a wet noodle i mean he just <laughs> he looks i mean seriously it reminded me of like a newborn baby or something like because they they don't have you know a lot of muscle tone and they they just flop around you know and stuff like that it really reminded me of that it was like wow like I'm sure it puts your body through a heck of a lot. I've been told um, those long duration missions are the equivalent of being in bed for like that length of a time. I do also love the photographs of the space shuttle docked with Mir. And it, it's it's when you see that and when you then see the, the, the photos of the space station docked with the ISS, you realize how much bigger the ISS is than, than, it, than Mir was. Because oh, yeah. the space station, uh, the space shuttle, oh, too many double S's, uh, the space shuttle almost dwarfed Mir a little bit. It looked so big up against Mir, but against the space station, mm-hmm. the ISS, it looked quite small. But that was such a such an important thing that happened there in terms of where we are now, the fact that, that um, NASA and the Russians managed to get, uh, get together to make sure that the shuttle did connect with Mir and, and they were working together. So, so the so the ISS went up. We started building in ninety eight. After after that, yes. Um, so Mir came down uh, in two thousand. Yeah, I think two thousand or two thousand one. Obviously, all all of the space stations have come down eventually. I was thinking about this earlier. When the ISS eventually comes down, that that's going to be crazy because it's huge. Uh, what will they just take some of the modules off and pull it down one bit at a time? It, I'm. I'm not That's sure. A good how, question. I'm not sure how they've even thought about how they're going to do that yet. But um, at some point, that's going. They're going to want to deal with it. It's going to become obsolete 
in many ways. I don't know. I haven't. Th- that's a really good question. And if anybody out there has any um, insight into that, uh, please let us know. But my guess, I mean, I'm guessing this completely is that they'll have to just take it down piece by piece because I don't have any idea how they would put something that large down just safely in one in the ocean, you yeah. know, because you just what if it does a Skylab and comes down over Australia? Like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. And Skylab was small. Yeah, it could take out a serious chunk of a city, couldn't it, and, and cause some serious damage. But but while the ISS has been up, the the, the Chinese have been having their own go at this. They've, they've sent two uh, two smallish um, space stations up, uh, Changong One and Tank Changong Two, um, and they've both done reasonable amount of time. Well, if, uh, they've they had various success with that but I don't know too much about it I just know that they've both been up there uh, and that's happened well I'm so out of the loop with Chinese stuff yeah I hate to admit this I don't know much about the uh, Chinese space program I believe there is a uh, there are a few space historians who discuss the uh, Chinese space program almost almost exclusively like that's kind of their field of study yeah Um. I, I believe Philip Clark is one of them and um, I'm sure he's published some papers in um, the British uh, Interplanetary Society magazine and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, he's probably the expert in that. Uh, I really don't know much about what they do. All I know is that their space stations kind of look like Solute. Yeah, they do. I believe they have an idea for like a modular one in the works, but uh, I don't believe they put it up yet. Maybe things to come there. Um, but it's, as, as I said, it's a shame they're not involved. And and also in in the future, we're going to have maybe in a few years another space station up there, but a lunar space station uh, with Gateway yeah. being proposed to to orbit orbit the moon, which is the next step, I guess, isn't it? It's the it's I suppose it's the natural next step. Um, although there's there's question marks about that particular part. Of, of the Artemis program. It's exciting. It's even being discussed, in my opinion. Yeah, and of course we could get into, you know, I, I, I won't get too into this, but um, as far as space habitation in the future, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a lot of books about that, about people who um, are interested in, like, space, long-term space settlement. Um, probably the best place to start with that is uh, The High Frontier, by uh, Gerard K. O'Neill, which was, it was published a long time ago. It was published in 1976, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're into that kind of stuff, that's the place to start. Yeah. So. And uh, the moon announcement certainly uh, does open up a lot of things in terms of that field of study. Yes. Which is exciting. Um, but I, I imagine for you, Emily, I, I know you'd probably love to go to the ISS, but I reckon that the ultimate for you would be if they put a rep- replica of Skylab up there and said, "Emily, you can go, go and go and have have a week up there. Go on, go and do twenty eight days." I would do it, yeah, in a heartbeat. <laughs> um, it, I feel like Skylab was just it's it's too underrated. It had so much. It, it really taught us everything. I mean, on the United States side that we know about space flight, um, long term space flight, because um, we kept all the data from that. Yeah. Um. A lot of the data from Skylab is still at JSC to this day. I, I think they kept all their samples, like everything. They kept everything. Everything that came out of them was kept and studied. Yes, they kept their stuff. 
that's the the detail that they went to, which is quite incredible in in order to learn the stuff that we can now use and put into practice now, which is important. But I think, although you say that Skylab is underrated, I think we kind of we kind of talked about this. The ISS is underrated. All these space, the Russian space stations are underrated. The, the and you started with it by saying that what the, what the Russians were doing is up there with the Apollo program, but it's just not discussed about in in the same terms. The fact that that. These have been going on and, and, and they've had long duration missions within them. It's it's now make it look easy when actually it's not easy. Spaceflight yeah. isn't easy. And the fact that, especially this, the ISS, the, the longevity of the ISS is a phenomenal achievement uh, uh, with all the with all the dangers and with all the things that, that, that could go wrong up there. Uh, the fact that we've had 20 years. I mean, that's just crazy. I mean... It, it it blows my mind, as I said, that that you know that people, anyone born since first of November two thousand, has always known someone in space. When my parents were born, no one had ever been in space, and 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 now we're at the point where people are always in space, and that's yeah. on the shoulders, not necessarily of the Apollo program. It's on the shoulders of those previous space station missions. Uh, that exactly. That, uh, and and that's the that's the truth and often unspoken uh, truth about those missions, and and they're important and, and they shouldn't be forgotten. Absolutely, uh, and they should and they should be they should be given a bit more credit. I agree totally. Yeah, I think um, yeah, starting with Salyut One, I mean, going that far back in 1971. There's a lot of heritage that I think people don't think about when they look at the ISS, and and the fact that that so- that Soyuz Eleven mission was ultimately a failure as well and and a loss of life of the three lives should mean we talk about it more we talk about the apollo one fire and how tragic that was rightfully so but the the loss of those three uh, russians trying to do something that no one had done before of living on a space station is equally as tragic obviously if uh, they're the only three people that have ever died above the Kerwin line the Carmen line the Carmen line the Kerwin line that Joe Joe Kerwin Kerwin on the brain there no it's okay Uh, (laughs) yeah I I blame you (laughs) but we should know their names I shouldn't I don't know their names but I know Grissom White and Chaffee I remember um, reading a little bit about when Soyuz 11 came back and um, when our side found out what had happened there was a lot of fear in the uh, U.S. space program that, oh, my God, did something... Because we were developing Skylab at that time. I mean, there were astronauts training for it at that time. And there was a lot of fear and trepidation that, you know, were they not able to tolerate, you know, space flight for that long? You know, was that why they died? Mm -hmm. And eventually we did discover it it had nothing to do with um, their increment in space. But I agree with you completely. I think, um, you know, we really owe these guys a huge debt and I, I don't think we discuss a, a lot of these um, early sacrifices as much as we should especially in the context of where we're at now you know exactly exactly anyway I've learned a lot in that uh, and I, there's a lot I need to digest and go away and, and look up and I hope anyone listening is also uh, feeling the same because yeah it's, it's all it's all good stuff and congratulations to everyone involved in the ISS yes we appreciate it and we Love seeing it uh, fly by in the night sky. Long may it continue. You got a hold of my legs, Joe. Yeah, one of them, one of them good. And that's all we have time for this week. As we said at the uh, top, please do get in touch if you want to comment on anything we've discussed. 
Which does remind me that Rick still got in contact. Uh, he commented on one of our posts saying that uh, that my comment last week about someone speeding up communication link, link did make him giggle. Uh, in fact, he said that Mr. Einstein says, um, no, it is what it is. So, uh, yeah, our, our idea that um, we wondering whether there was a way of speeding up the comms from Earth to Mars, apparently apparently not uh, so that clears that up and uh, but thank you for all the other comments too and and the memes uh, there was yes. a great meme this week <laughs> we love baby yoda memes yeah. that's for sure that was wonderful uh, thanks todd for that and it's really great to hear from you so please please do give us a flavor and get in contact and maybe give us a review on apple Podcasts or whatever there is an option to and thanks again to our patreons who continue to support the show monthly uh, if you're interested you can join in over on patreon.com slash space and things And don't forget that you can get one of our first t-shirts or make a donation over on our website, which is spaceandthingspodcast.com. Yep, uh, it's all very much appreciated. Please please do have a look at that anyway. Uh, But for now, remember, in space, no one can hear you stream. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.